Father, we hear a storm is coming, and so we pray that you would just keep the electricity running until we're uh, finished tonight. And Lord, I pray even when we finish here, when we unhook one from another and, and head to our homes in a while, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to remind us of how connected to you we are. Lord, we saying, I want to know you. I want to hear your voice. And may these not be evangelical songs that we sing by rote. May they not be a vain cry of people hoping beyond hope. But Father, may they be the reality of our spiritual lives. Lord, we know the day is coming when we will see your face. Reach out and perhaps, Father, even, even to touch you. And to hear your voice, Lord, even now in this day, we pray that we might be given ears to hear and sensitivity to your Holy Spirit. That, Father, in our new birth, we truly would be able to hear you and be guided by you and to know beyond the shadow of a doubt where you're leading, how you're leading, and what you're telling us to do. And Father, tonight as we go into the Psalms, I just thank you for the Psalms that we get to look at. Singularly practical Psalms tonight, Lord. Where David poured out his heart, and Lord, we get, we get to glean so much here on how to walk in your spirit and how to live in this life. And I pray that we wouldn't miss a single practical uh, step along the way. Would you bless us all, Father, now as we open your word, as we praise you in our hearts, even through this study, in the precious name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, we pray. Amen. So we'll start off in Psalm 11. Sunday morning, Sundays are just uh, always awesome to me, and, and this past Sunday was no exception, as Tom Shorthouse was leading communion. And during second hour, as he was speaking, and I was, I, I stepped outside, and I was listening to what he had to say. I'd already heard it once, so I was listening a second time. And as I listened in, I was holding the bread and, and the juice, and it, the thought just struck me that what we hold in our hands when we take that unleavened bread is travel bread. This was the bread of haste. The unleavened bread of the person going on a journey. And every Sunday as we take communion together, perhaps that will be a thought to stick with you even this Sunday. When you take that bread, this is travel bread. Don't forget, we are sojourners. We're just on a journey. We're stopping by on this planet, on this earth, in this season of life, but we are on a journey to a better place. And that really is where I believe the Psalms will take us tonight. On a journey, a sojourney, as sojourners... And since we're in the Psalms, you can spell sojourners with a P if you'd like to. But the question is, where are we going? If we're sojourners, to where are we headed? We are invited, my friends, during this life to sojourn in the tent of the Lord. His tabernacle, as it were. In this life, today, now, to sojourn there, to rest there, as we go up what David refers to as Holy Hill. We are headed up Holy Hill. This will make more sense to you in a few moments. But I encourage you again, as we are reading through several small psalms tonight, 
here, not very long. We'll cover some ground. But David is offering, providing for us a practical guide to sojourning. En route up Holy Hill to be where the Lord is. Not just in in spirit, but in absolute reality to ultimately end up there in the presence of God, full and unhindered by the flesh. We are on our way up Holy Hill. Now as we open up the 11th Psalm, we begin with a great answer to a sojourner's question. And the question is, how does a man of faith respond to the menace of fear? How does a woman of faith stand up against the dangers of life, the things that would cause you to be fearful, to to shudder, to shake, to worry? How do we face our fears? This is the Psalm of David, Psalm 11, in hard times. We don't know exactly when. Some of the best commentators out there have given very different opinions. Spurgeon says that this must be when David was a young man. He's in Saul's court. And the intensity of Saul's anger and hatred toward David is rising. And as it rises, his friends come along and say, David, you've got to get out, man. You've got to run. His friends are going to tell him to flee. Now, Kyle and Delich, they take a different approach. They believe that this psalm was written by King David in the days that Absalom, his son, was preparing to usurp the throne. And we already saw some psalms that dealt with that, and we know specifically they did. The Kyladelich believed that while Absalom was preparing to take his father's throne, word was beginning to reach David and his counselors, his, his advisors were saying, it's time to get out, time to run, time to flee. Whenever it is, either as a young man or an older man, David's friends and advisors are telling him it's time to run. Verse 1, Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? How can you say this, David is saying? It's a very strong declaration here in the Hebrew. The question in verse 1 is in the interrogative. In other words, what David is saying is not just how can you, it's more like how dare you? How dare you tell me to flee? The Lord is my refuge. I'm not running away. The Lord is my security, my safety, the place where I run. He tells his fearful advisors, and you're telling me to flee to the mountain like a bird. I already have. I fled to the mountain of the Lord, and he is my mountain refuge. David uses this word refuge a lot in the Psalms. God is my refuge and my strength. Very present help in time of need. David will use the word refuge 41 times at least in the book of Psalms. The Hebrew word for refuge is kasah. Now, kasah, if used in the physical sense, literally means to flee for protection. So it's interesting that David would choose that word to his advisors. In the Lord, I take kasah. In the Lord, I flee. He is my refuge. You're telling me to run away to another place. But spiritually, the word in the Hebrew, kasah, means to put your full trust in the Lord. If you're going to flee anywhere, flee faithfully into Him. Now, just a show of hands here. You can raise your hand. It won't implicate you in anything. Do you ever feel like fleeing? How many of you feel like running away sometimes? Friends say, get out of that marriage. Advisors say, quit that job. Others say, get out of that church, man. It's just tearing you down. I think of a man by the name of Demosthenes. Demosthenes, back in 
338 B.C. He was an infantryman. He went, went on to be a, a famous statesman of Athens. But an epic, epic battle raged between the Athenians and the Macedonians in 338 B.C. in which 3,000 Athenians were killed. It's a bloody battle. Demosthenes ran away. He fled as a young man to survive that day, but was censured for it and branded a coward. And even later in his life, as a statesman of Athens, occasionally people would come up to him and dog him with this question, why'd you run away? You're a coward. You've probably heard what it was that Demosthenes said. He said, he who fights and runs away and runs away will live to fight another day. That's where it came from. It's true. He who fights and runs away will live to fight another day. It's, it's true. Cowardly, but true. And this from this man, Demosthenes. But David says, you know what? If I'm going to flee anywhere, it's going to be into the open arms of the Lord, my refuge. If I'm running at all, it's into Him. I'm not going to flee off like a frightened bird because I already have my refuge in the Lord. Now, his advisors make a good point in verse 2. They say to him, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Look at our country today. I don't know if you've had that thought. I have. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If that which the founders began, our pursuit of liberty, many people think our pursuit of liberty, our foundations are crumbling in America under the weight of all kinds of different mentalities, different thoughts, different belief systems. And there are many right now who are saying we've got to get back to the founding fathers. We've got to get back to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Now, I've read the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, and they're solid, sound, good documents. But to those who are saying, to the Constitution, I would say with Isaiah, verse, chapter 8, verse 20, no, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. We have a Constitution, gang. Now, I don't mean to undermine... America, or to be disloyal in my statements, I'm just saying, while I'm a part-time sojourning citizen here in America, I'm a full-time citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And I have a constitution on which I stand that is solid, that is foundational, that cannot be shaken. The Hebrew writer tells us this, we have a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The value of our American constitution is in its reliance on a far older document, and that is the law of the Lord. That's why it worked at all. If any of it worked, it's because of its basis in the truth of God. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We stand on Him. Our refuge is God the Father. Our foundation for that place of security, that safety, it is Jesus Christ. And if our foundation is anything less than Jesus, we'll continue to flee. When life gets hard, we'll run. We'll run to counselors. We'll run to other people. We'll run to all manner of distractions. 
unless our foundation is in Christ Jesus. And when that is the foundation, you know what? You can blow everything else in my life away and I will still be able to stand. Not as John prayed, not on my own strength, but on the solid foundation that is Jesus Christ. The advisors say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? I love David's response, verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of man. What does that mean? It means God's not blinking. His eyelids test the sons of man. He's not missing a thing. Eyes wide open, God sees what's going on. He is completely aware. He sees it all. He knows what's up. And by the way, that's where we need to look. Up. Trusting Him, standing on the foundation. God's not blinking. Verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Hey, everyone gets tested. Everyone gets tried. Everyone goes through difficulties. It's not the tests themselves that determine the righteous or the wicked, the good or the bad. It's the outcome of the tests that show where the heart is. And so David says, we all go through it, man. Good, bad, and ugly. Everybody goes through it, but the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And upon the wicked, he will rain snares. And I don't believe he's talking about drums. In fact, the word, some of your Bibles in the margins say this, the word snares there is coals of fire. Upon the wicked he will rain coals of fire. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. Now, when has that happened? When has the Lord rained down brimstone from heaven? Anyone remember? Um, Yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah in the past... In the future revelation. revelation to come. The Lord will do this. And David is speaking, I believe, prophetically. He is looking ahead. You're going to see this begin to emerge in many of the Psalms. Prophetic statements. In fact, Sunday morning, man, Psalm 16, I encourage you to read ahead and come prepared to be blown away. I, I had to wait on it. There's too much stuff. We're going to do it tonight. We're not even going to get there. It is so rich with prophecy. And the voice of Christ speaking, it will blow your minds. But here, he says, Upon the wicked he'll rain snares, fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. This is to come. Now, good news. Children of Christ, those of you who stand on the foundation of Jesus, which I believe, I hope, is all of you. Revelation 3.10, Jesus said, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world, to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now some will say, oh, Revelation 3. Yeah, that's the letter to that church in Philadelphia, right? Well, that doesn't have anything to do with us. Really? I believe it absolutely has to do with us in this day and age that it is a clear message to the church. Why is that, Rick? Because Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of testing which is about to come upon the whole world. That has not ever happened. The whole world has yet to be thrust, thrown into that hour of testing, that which Jesus called the tribulation. It is a period of time that is coming, that is declared. And we are called to be forewarners of that time. The whole world will go into tribulation and all those rebellious 
Even those who die beforehand, who die in their rebellion, will face the judgment of the Lord at the end of that tribulation. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. And the upright will behold His face. That is good news. Sometimes I think our faith is just too short-sighted. You know, we have faith for today. Or maybe faith for just into next week. Or I can believe God's promises in my life, you know, for next month. Beyond that, I'm just going to have to wait and see. And David writes, the upright will behold his faith. We sang this, I want to see your face. You will. This is guaranteed. This is the promise. We are going to see His faith. That thought alone should carry us through so much turmoil and testing and trial in the world. Having a hard day, you're going to see His face. You look forward to that. If you've got nothing else going on good in your life, you look forward to that because it is promised, it's guaranteed, it's coming. Life's going to get difficult. But if you are among the upright, you will behold His face. Okay, there's my problem. How do I know if I'm among the upright? Let me put it this way. You better know. You ought to know. If you don't know, then you need to sit down and have some prayer with Pastor Les or myself. Because there shouldn't be a believer here tonight. There shouldn't be a believer on the face of the planet that doesn't know they are in the Lord. That doesn't know they have salvation. And if you're waffling on that, man, let's, let's pray about that and look into what the Word says and ask the Spirit to, to confirm this to you because that's a knowing. You know if you're one of the upright. And if you're not sure, listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That is the upright. Jesus died so you, so I could be the upright. So... How does faith respond to fear? Faith takes refuge in Jesus Christ. But notice, it wasn't at the end of the psalm that David took refuge in the Lord. It was at the beginning. And that's how it works. Our refuge in God before the storm hits. Before the trials hit. Before the struggles. Take your refuge in Him now. That when the hard times come, you are prepared for it. Psalm 12. And all of these, it's as though, though David is just continuing right on. It's like one long psalm, really, together. Verse 1, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. How fitting that this psalm follows right after Psalm 11. Sometimes it's not friends or counselors who are telling you to flee. Sometimes it's your own fear that you're all alone in what you're facing. It's your own sense that there's nobody left. Help, Lord! I'm by myself in this. I look around. There's no one godly around. There's no one faithful. There's nobody righteous. I I feel alone in this. It's the Elijah complex. One of two greatest prophets in the history of Israel prior to the coming of Jesus. Elijah, Moses. Elijah had a complex. He was powerful. He was great. This man who could call down fire from the heavens. Who could stop the rain and then pray again and and God would make it rain again. This man who had such a powerful relationship with God. That he wiped out all the prophets of Baal. That he took them on with confidence. And it's just after that, 1 Kings 19, that Elijah goes running. Running for his life. Why? Because he hears Jezebel's after him. 
The man could put down 400 prophets of Baal, but when Jezebel goes after him, he starts to flee. And he flees up into the mountains, into the caves, and he's alone and he's shivering and he's frightened there. And, and the Lord comes, remember the story. The Lord comes and says, what are you doing, Elijah? Maybe not with that tone of voice, but that's what I would have said. What are you doing, man? And Elijah says, I'm all alone. There's nobody left. I'm the only prophet. And in essence, God says, no, you're not. Elijah, I've got 7,000 people who are faithful to me in Israel right now. I've maintained a remnant. Don't you worry about that. You are not alone. Psalm 12, we have David feeling alone in his faith, at least at the beginning, surrounded by godless people who are all falling all over each other in flattery and falsehood. Verse 2, they speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double heart. They speak. Double heart? Yeah, you can't tell which way they're coming from. They say one thing, they do another. They're liars. They're deceivers. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. <laughs> I love David's prayers. And the tongue that speaks great things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are our own, who is Lord over us. Man, these are bombastic, proud, egotistical, big-mouthed people. David says they're everywhere. And they're loud. Like the vocal minority who with camera and microphone and celebrity status are leading or trying to lead this country down the tubes. And sometimes you turn on the TV and you just think they're everywhere. The whole thing is godless. I'm all alone in this. And the Lord goes, no you're not. No you're not. By the way, Sunday night you'll have opportunity to gather with other Christians in global prayer. Just tuck that away. 6.30 Sunday evening there's going to be a global prayer service at Anacortes Christian Church and you're all invited to be there. And not only will people in this area be praying, but globally people from all around the world, Christians, will be praying a similar prayer together. You are not alone. You are not alone in this. But more and more it does feel like the big mouths are the majority in the world. So here's what we do. As followers in Jesus Christ, it is critical that we become vocal about our faith. That we stop being passive about who it is that we believe in. We need to speak out, not politically, but spiritually. Jesus said in Matthew 10.26, Do not fear them. There's nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear, whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And in the meantime, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What marching orders? Man, speak out. You're feeling a little lonely? Talk it up. It's time to proclaim Jesus Christ into this world. And the more you proclaim, by the way, the more you will recognize there are other proclaimers. Now the Bible tells us there's a literal day when marginal believers on the earth will cry this out. They will say, as in verse 1, The godly man ceases to be. The faithful disappear from among the sons of man. Might that be an interesting reference to the rapture of the church? There will be those. I'm convinced of it. Sitting in churches, filling pews, with no relationship with Jesus whatsoever. They're just there for the social thing or because family go or because they think they're supposed to be there. 
Those that will show up on a Sunday morning and suddenly... It's awfully quiet around here. One or two others drive up and say, Is there church this morning? Because the faithful are gone. Disappear from the earth. I'm convinced personally that some of these psalms are going to be prayed during the tribulation. That people who kind of get it, but never committed at this point, are going to get it when the church is pulled out, taken up, caught up. They're going to get it, and they're suddenly going to realize what they missed. All of that information is going to crumble to, to, the, to the realization that Jesus is Lord, and they're going to begin crying out, and God and His grace will save them. They're going to miss the party, and they're probably going to lose their heads for it. But that day is coming after the church is taken home, as Jesus said, kept from the hour of testing, that there will be those who come to faith in the tribulation. And the vocal majority during that time, man, the vast majority on earth will reject God. And those who feel alone and cast out in their faith are going to cry out psalms just like this. They'll begin to pray these to God and God will hear them. Verse 5. Because of the devastation of the afflicted, because of the groaning of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he longs. Oh, I love this. Now God's talking. David's not just writing a song. The Spirit of Christ is speaking through the person of David in this psalm. David is now speaking the words of God. In many cases, we'll find this. It's not just the psalmist writing a worship song. It is God speaking directly through the pen of David or Asaph or the sons of Korah or others. God will hear. And we should listen up now because, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. Note the contrast. Big mouth words from loud, flattering, flabbergasting, false speaking people or the words of the Lord which are pure. They're pure words as silver tried on a furnace on the earth refined seven times. In other words, completely refined. Absolutely pure, perfect silver. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will preserve Him from this generation forever. God's words are pure. David will write in Psalm 19, verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You know, there was a family that visited the Bridge Fellowship here um, probably three, four months back. They came once and they will not be back. I share this, and that happens. You know, people are checking out churches, going to different places. But this family decided not to come back because we take the Bible too literally. It was like, okay. You want me to tell you what church to go that doesn't take it so literally? They're called... No, I didn't. Gang, if we can't bank on the pure integrity of God's Word, we will end up bankrupt. We can't believe His Word as truth. We're in trouble. What are you going to stand on? How are you going to know what's there and what's what's literal and what's not and what's just stories and what's actual and what God really expects versus what He... How are you going to know? 
I've said this before, you got one option with the Word of God. You either take the whole thing as written or you cast the whole thing out. But you don't play games saying, I like this, I don't like that. It is God's Word, pure and whole. Jesus said in Matthew 7.24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rocks. Again, we're back to that foundation. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that barn house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. That's where your faith is. Your faith is in Jesus. You are on the rock. You are listening to the words of Christ which are pure and perfect words. But we're told in verse 8, the wicked strut. They strut about on every side. When vileness is exalted among the sons of men. When vileness is exalted. Boy, that's a picture of the tribulation if ever I've heard one. More than any other time in the history of the world, vileness will be exalted in the person of Antichrist. In the attitude of rebellion and the refusal to repent that is seen in the world at that time. Vileness exalted. And you know, we're seeing and we're hearing it more and more, aren't we? People doing things, willing to say things that would have shocked even even non-Christians. 20, 30 years ago. The exaltation of vileness. Words like those of Voltaire. John Corson in his application commentary tells of the famous famous French philosopher Voltaire who once wrote, he said this, in 20 years Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear. And 20 years later, Voltaire was dead. Better yet, 20 years later, the very house in which Voltaire penned those words was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society and began churning out Bibles, which they're still doing to this day. Because the words of God are pure. And the vileness of man will pass away. Jesus said in Matthew 7.26, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Psalm 13. But continuing in this vein, you hear David, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart, all the day. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. Oh, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I read this whole psalm to you all at once for this reason. It's wonderful that in just six short verses, David goes from, from depression to delight. From, as one pastor put it, from a sigh to a song. David goes in verse 1 from angst to verse 6 to, Ah, Lord God, You are good. What happened? How did we get from verse 1 to verse 6? Why the, the dramatic change from one place 
to the other, and the answer is very simple. David prayed. He just prayed. It's not an amazing prayer. It's very short. didn't take very long. He begins by asking four questions. How long will you forgive me? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my own soul? And how long will my enemy be exalted over me? I love this about David. He's honest and to the point. He's not condemning the Lord. He's just saying it feels like it's gone on for such a long time. How long am I going to feel this way? How long am I going to struggle? How long is this attack going to be against me? How long, Lord? Then we can learn something from David here in the way we pray. Don't be afraid to pray your heart to the Father. Look, this is what's going on. This is how it feels. I'm not blaming you, God, but man, I feel lousy right now. Man, this situation stinks. Father, how long must I put up with this? David doesn't talk about the Lord or talk against the Lord. He just talks to the Lord. And the beauty of this little psalm is its prayerful direction upward, Godward. James, brother of Jesus, in in his letter, chapter 4, verse 8, said, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That's what happens in, in this psalm. David's in a place of despair and depression, but he draws near to God, and in drawing near, everything changes for him. Everything shifts from, again, depression to delight. Yeah, but, I mean, can it really be that simple? Aren't there things in my life that take much prayer over extended periods of time to break the strongholds of the enemy? You know, like years and years of counseling. I'm going to see a therapist and maybe 20 years from now I'll get fixed. And you've only been alive for 18 years. I don't get that. I don't understand. I don't understand the mentality that says we've got to pray and pray and pray. We've got to keep coming back. Now, not that you shouldn't be tenacious in prayer. Don't misunderstand me. But I'm not convinced that it's much and many words and much prayer and constant, you know, work and fighting. And Sometimes it's just as simple as six verses to get out of the hole that we're in. Prayer is just far more simple than we think. Now we see times, I've shared this before, in the book of Daniel, where Daniel is praying, and he is just laboring over his prayer, and he's waiting on the Lord, and three weeks it's like he's sick on his bed, and he's praying, and he's praying, and he's praying, and God doesn't respond, until after three weeks he finally brings relief. God's doing something in Daniel's heart. There's another time when Daniel begins praying, Daniel chapter 9, and the whole, whole prayer, if you read it in Hebrew, takes about 30 seconds, and when he opens his eyes, an angel's standing there waiting for him to finish. Because sometimes, oftentimes, prayer is not as hard as we think it is. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you know what? When you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition like the Gentiles. They think they'll be heard for their many words. He says, do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus goes on in Matthew 6 to teach the famous Lord's Prayer. You know it. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer. 68 words. 
probably the most often repeated prayer in history since Jesus. 68 words in length, and if you just pray for it with pauses, with the occasional Selah, it takes 30 seconds. Really? Do you know what's great? The apostles come along. A year and a half goes by, and Jesus is praying. And he opens his eyes, and as he finishes, the apostles go, Lord, teach us to pray like John taught his apostles. We want, now, we, we've been here a while. You know, we've been walking together. We've spent time with you. We've grown and matured in our faith. And now we want to know how to really pray. Yeah, well, you told us that, that Lord's Prayer thing. But that's so short and quick. Teach us now how to really pray. You know what Jesus does? Same prayer. Luke chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, he prays the same prayer, only this time he shortens it down to 37 words instead of 68. Almost half the length because, see, we complicate and Jesus simplifies. We stress and worry and push and go for the longer. We write 2,000 page health care bills. That's what we do. And in Psalm 13, in just four verses, David gets it. He comes to verse 5 and he says, But but I've trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. I I just love this. There is a a beautiful progression here. As David moves forward in his heart, note the progression. I have trusted, he says. Then he says, I shall rejoice. And then thirdly, I will sing. Do you see this? I've trusted. That's faith. And faith leading to joy. I will rejoice. And finally, joy leading to worship. Faith leads to joy, leads to worship. But it starts with faith. I'm just going to trust you, Lord. I have trusted you. I've looked back. I see how you've treated me all my life. I am in a hard time right now. I am in dire straits. But when I look back over the history I have with you, Jesus, oh, it's so good. You have dealt bountifully with me. Faith begins to emerge. And out of faith, joy. And from joy comes our worship. Which is why I said a couple weeks back, you can't teach worship. It's got to come out of the heart. It's, It's what begins to bubble up as our faith leads us into joy. So it moves David from how long to how good is the Lord. And he goes there in a heartbeat. Now Psalm 14, continuing on, recognizes the sad state of someone without any faith at all. Psalm 14, verse 1, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. Wow, we met this guy back in Psalm 10, verse 4. Those who... Let's see, Psalm 10 verse 4 says, The wicked in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. There is no God. Well now, David puts it very succinctly, I think. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The atheist just flat out denies God's existence. The agnostic questions God's existence. By the way, what do you get when you cross an insomniac with an agnostic and a dyslexic? You get someone who stays up all night wondering if there really is a dog. 
<laughs> I love that joke. Today's agnostic, ridiculous as it is, agnosticism is about as ridiculous as it gets, my friends. At least the atheist takes a stand. We'll give him that. Jesus says, would that you were either hot or cold. Man, make a choice. The atheist is cold to God. The believer, hot and passionate to the Lord. The agnostic goes, eh, you know what? I really like a tepid bath. I prefer lukewarm milk. I'd rather sit on the fence. I don't want to make up my mind too quickly here. The agnostic. Today's agnostic claims to be the most intellectually honest. Which, by the way, and and I don't want to be too brutal here, but I think is absolutely stupid. I don't say that there isn't a God, but I don't say that there is, therefore I am more intellectual. You see this on university campuses all over the place. And by the way, on Christian campuses as well. You hear professors coming along, cultured, scholarly, self-impressed, talking about how, well, we don't, you know, they exalt cynicism and uncertainty, as if uncertainty means that you're more of a thinker. No, it doesn't. It, 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 It doesn't make you more discerning to not have a clue and to sit there in your cluelessness. I'll tell you what, I want to know. I don't want to be one who says, I don't know. I want to know. The agnostic is from the Greek word agnosko. Nosko meaning to know. And the A, putting it in the negative, so the agnostic is someone who says, I know nothing. I just, I don't know. <laughs> What's going to happen after you die? I don't know. Okay. Uh, is there a God? I don't know. Do you have any hope for your future? I don't know. I mean, it's just, really, this is intelligence. This is exalted. The Latin for agnostic. You know what that word is? Ignoramus. That's where we get the word. Ignoramus. The Bible calls them fools. Why? Because agnosticism is the opposite of informed, educated intellect. The agnostic comes along and just determines not to know. But in the search for meaning and knowledge and understanding in the world... You know what the Bible teaches, and this is absolutely true, it takes intentional determination not to find God. You have to choose not to find God. You have to decide, I will have nothing to do with God. Well, why would you say something like that? Well, Paul said, Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes... His eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. If you open your eyes to the world about you and the truth, you have no excuse. There is no excuse for not knowing. And someone who stands before God saying, well, I was agnostic. I didn't say that you weren't real. I just didn't know. God will say, how many clues did you need, fella? What else did you want me to do to reveal my nature to you. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air, Matthew chapter 6. They don't sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. I mean, just think about the birds. How do they get fed? How does this whole circle of life thing, how does this happen? 
When you're telling me the whole thing's random, Jesus says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. I love driving across the Deception Pass Bridge and looking at trees growing out of rock. That blows my mind. What man could do that? What man could make the water swirl and spin the way they do through the pass? What man could build up the mountains and cover them with just the right amount of green and bring it in the right season? What man could paint the sky the colors that we see at sunset in the summertime or in the winter? It's absolutely astounding. And people go, I don't know. (laughs) Gang, atheism and agnosticism does not come about for lack of evidence. I've said this before. Disbelief is intentional. And by the way, note this in verse 1 in the original text. The words, there is, are not there. So how does it read without them? The fool has said in his heart, no God. That's what's being said. No God. It was 20 years after Voltaire's bombastic boast to destroy Christianity. In 20 years, he said, it'll take me 20 years to do it, and in 20 years, he's dead and gone, and his house was sold, as I said, to the Geneva Bible Society. But in 18 years, Voltaire lay on his deathbed. And he recited, he, he, he spoke to his doctor, Dr. Theodore Tronkine. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. It's a French name, I don't speak French. Got a D in French in high school. It's a bad semester. I brought it up to a B by the next semester. But this this doctor was a strong believer in Christ. And highly respected by by Voltaire, who was an absolute atheist. Voltaire is dying. And he reaches up, he looks at his doctor, and his doctor records these last words. He says, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you give me six months more life and then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. Oh Christ! Oh Jesus Christ! And he died. Voltaire. The attending nurse was so shaken by this she said, not for all the wealth in Europe will I ever watch another atheist die. Atheism, agnosticism, it is just saying no to the God that you know is truly here. Rather than saying no to God, how about yes? Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Second <laughs> Corinthians one twenty, Paul said, As many are the promises of God, in him they are yes. It's not no, it's yes. Therefore also through him is our Amen, our yes, Lord. Yes, to the glory of God through us. But while some resolve not to seek God, wow, God is still searching. Verse 2, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And I have to wonder if Paul wasn't studying Psalm 14 when he wrote the book of Romans. If he wasn't reading this very psalm, because Paul starts out in chapter 1 talking about those who reject God even though all the evidence is here. He gets to chapter 3 and he literally quotes verses 2 and 3 of Psalm 14 word for word. He tags this. 
writing, No one does good, not even one. Now, with this verse, David describes a world without grace. He describes a world in the dark days before, as Paul said in Romans 3.22, before the righteousness of God came to us through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, until Jesus came, none did righteous. No, not one. It wasn't even a possibility. For all our weakness or for all our strength, there was nobody who did good stuff. And then Jesus came along and suddenly righteousness becomes an actuality among people. It becomes legitimate and legitimized. David described a world before grace came, and I believe he also describes a world again after grace is removed, or at least after the Spirit of God is removed from the world. Again, we have a prophetic picture of the tribulation that emerges here in Psalm 14, as well as in Psalm 12. How do you see that? Pay attention here. We see an inclination toward the rejection of God. That's your first hint that dark days are coming. The inclination toward the rejection of God. Second hint here is the increase of wickedness. Jesus said in Matthew 24.12, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The inclination toward the rejection of God, the increase of wickedness, and then reading on in verse 4, we see the instigation of anti-Semitism. Verse 4. Do all the workers of wickedness not know who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? They eat up my people, David says. Who are David's people? The Jewish people. It's Israel. My people are being eaten alive by all of this wickedness around. And my friends, Israel's greatest time of turmoil is ahead of them in the tribulation, not behind them in the Holocaust. And truly it's one of the things that breaks my heart because I have a heart. You know this, I have a heart for Israel and for the people. A longing for them to find their Messiah in Yeshua. And yet, I know what's coming. I know what the Bible has declared. Not because God wants it to happen, but because God has already seen it take place from His vantage point outside of time. He knows what's coming. He declares it ahead. If some would hear and be forewarned and receive Jesus before it happens. But that time, gang, the workers of wickedness will spread out like vermin in what Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's distress. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for the day is great, there's none like it. And it is a time of Jacob's trouble, his distress, and he will be saved from it. Now I know there are some who might say, Israel again, Pastor? You're bringing these people up again. Why do you keep talking about the Jews? Hey, listen. Even if you don't yet have a heart for Israel, and I hope you do, but even if you don't, there is so much that we need to learn from the root into which we've been grafted. From God's dealings with Israel. If nothing else, man, learn from it. And the reality is the workers of wickedness eat up God's people like bread. Why should it be any different for God's people, the church? Why should we feel ourselves somehow protected from the evil of the world, the wickedness around us? Don't you think the wicked are going to go after Christianity as much as they went after Judaism? And they are. And the attacks are on the rise. 
and the attempts to subvert and to silence and to put down Christianity are pretty constant, especially in our culture, though it's growing like wildfire in other nations, even as our nation is turning off the light. We need to learn from Israel. Is the enemy eating away at the faith of God's people in this country? And if we can answer even the slightest yes to that, man, we need to turn our hearts to God in a major way. We have a mouse in the house. We do. He was in our garage at first, scampered, cute little guy, just a little fuzzy little mouse. You see, last year we had some mice. Cheryl wanted me to go out and buy those traps that the little mouse goes into alive. You know, I wanted to lop their little heads off. She said, no, no, we want to save the mice. So we got the little plastic trap with the little trap door, and in they go, and we'd find a little mouse, and Cheryl would take it out to the orchard and let the little mouse go. And I could just see him going, skip, 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 right back into the garage. She's compassionate. I am not. I will admit this to you. If you want compassion, call less. I will not have any for you. So we have a mouse in the house, not in the garage. I'm in my office studying this morning, and I hear, Rick! I come out of my office, what is the deal? Mouse! And I look down on the kitchen floor, and there he goes, same cute little guy, skippity, 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 skip, skip, and under the cupboard. All right, he was cute last year. This little sucker is not cute anymore. They're cute until they start to gnaw on things like cereal boxes and macaroni and cheese, you know, real staple foods. And I am here to declare to you that this mouse is going to meet a dastardly end. And it may be in the morning when his little head is snapped right off. And so the atheist... The agnostic, the worker of wickedness, must beware. Verse 5, there they are in great dread, for God is with the righteous generation. I like that. God is with the righteous generation. But note this, it says there. They are in great dread. Where? Where is the there? In the midst of their disbelief. I'll tell you what, the place of the agnostic is not a good place to be. The place of the atheist, there, they are in great dread. Because there, there is no hope. There is no salvation outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no future, save a future of dread. He's with the righteous generation. I like this, the word generation there is dur in the Hebrew, D-U-R. If you're transliterating, it means a generation, a habitation, a dwelling. Because God is ever present in the dwelling of the righteous. Verse 6, you would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is His refuge. There it is again. The Lord is His refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores His captive people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. And I'll tell you, at the conclusion of the tribulation, the Lord will come forth out of Zion. Exactly as David said. When the Jewish people feel like they're at their darkest, most dangerous time, the salvation of Israel will arrive. In the nick of time, right on time, and Jesus will restore captive Israel. 
Jacob's trouble is going to become Jacob's joy in that great day. Now, Psalm 15, one more short one. It brings a great conclusion to this section of the Psalms. We have the wickedness of man in Psalm 14, and now in Psalm 15, by contrast, the citizen of Zion, or at least how to walk. Remember, we started out saying, we're on this journey, we're sojourning up Holy Hill. Here's how you do it, David says. Psalm 15. Now, because of the similarity to Psalm 24, Psalm 15 is probably related to David's experience of bringing the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. Remember the story? 2 Samuel chapter 6. Go back and read it tonight, perhaps before bed. It's just an amazing story. The first attempt, well, didn't go so well. The first attempt was unbiblical. It was humanistic. You know, John, again, you're you're praying about strength versus weakness. (laughs) The first attempt was all about man's strength. You could call the first attempt to bring the ark up Uzzah's last parade. Because they put the ark on a cart, which is unbiblical. And they've got the band plan. And Uzzah, whose name means strong. And Ahio, or Ahio, his name means friendly. You've got these two men leading the ark on this cart. You know, one on either side or leading it out, bringing it up. Mr. Strong and Mr. Friendly. You know, such a picture of man. And everything's going great until they get to the threshing floor of Nacon. And something goes terribly wrong. The oxen, they they trip. And the cart, it tips. And Uzzah sticks out his hand and touches the ark just to study it. And boom, he's dead. David names that place Perez Uzzah, which means the breaking of Uzzah, or God broke out on Uzzah. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 9, David said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And that's the opening question of Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Literally, who may sojourn in your tabernacle? Who may dwell on your holy hill? How can this be, Lord? Well, it's it's He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in His heart. He does not slander with His tongue, nor does evil to His neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against His friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He does not swear to His own, or He swears to His own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Eleven things to do to make it up Holy Hill. David declares eleven things in five verses. And he says, this is how you go up God's Holy Hill. For you see, the second attempt to bring up the Ark of the Covenant actually went very well. They learned a few things. It was biblical, and it was worshipful, and it was successful. They did it in six simple steps. Six steps. Literally, six steps. They walked six paces, and they stopped. And they offered sacrifice, and they worshipped God. And then they walked six more steps and stopped. They did this game for a distance of ten miles. What a long, wonderful, extended time of worship as they bring the ark. They carried it which was what was prescribed in Israel. You were not to put the ark on a cart. You're supposed to carry it. They carried it on their shoulders. They did it the right way. 
And David begins to give some new insight. Now, having realized the way to go up God's holy hill. And he gives 11 things. And I'm not going to do all 11. You can study through those and and draw them out. Let me just give you a few. He says those who walk with integrity. The sojourn who would go up God's holy hill is the one who walks with integrity. Proverbs 10.9 He who walks in integrity walks securely, but he who perverts his ways will be found out. The integrity of the upright will guide them, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. Proverbs 11, verse 3. Integrity is huge for the follower of Jesus Christ. It's not just words games. The more my action matches my confession, the straighter my procession and the greater my profession of Jesus. Did you get all that? The bottom line is, if I do what I say, I will grow stronger in my walk. It's not just saying what you believe, it's acting what you believe. And as we do that, the path gets straighter. Oh, it may narrow, but it's straight and sure and absolute. And you find yourself in the place of knowing as opposed to the place of guessing. You know, it's why I asked on Sunday, how many really believe Jesus is coming soon? I mean, I see some hands, and, and we say it. Yeah, I, I think he's coming soon. I think he could come before this storm blows over tonight. I think Jesus is coming soon. He could come before Pastor Rick stops teaching. I mean, literally, because he keeps going on and on. So Jesus may yet come. Do we believe that, really? Why, if we say it, do we live in such a way that if he came, we would be shocked? Oh, I believe you'll come. And then we're sitting there with our popcorn and the movie rated R and just going, yeah, it's great. I hope Jesus doesn't come right now. (laughs) It'd be really embarrassing. Do we believe it? He who walks with integrity. If you profess Jesus as Lord, and if you continue to profess Jesus is coming soon, man, live like it. Walk like it. And enjoy the walk all the more. How many of you... Let me see a show of hands. Want to go up when the Lord calls. Alright. Walk like it. Live like it. Oh, so you're saying if I do the right thing, He'll say... No, I'm saying grace will save you. But walk. Let's be on the journey, sojourning up Holy Hill. So when He calls, we're already at the top, ready to go. We're already waiting for Him. James 2.20 I love how James says this. He's so blunt. Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. There's a great dynamic there. I believe. And so I act with integrity on that belief, and my belief then is strengthened, which gives me more strength to act with more integrity, which then strengthens my faith. The one who walks with integrity, secondly, and works righteousness. Think about this. One who works righteousness. What does that mean? It's like an artist working in oils or clay. What happens to that artist? He starts to get clay on him. He starts to get the stuff, the materials that he's working with start to get all over him. And gang, the more we work in righteousness, the more righteousness is going to get all over us. The more we practice righteousness is what I'm saying. John said in 1 John 3, 7, Little children, 
Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. And this does not deny grace in the least. I love that Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, that great chapter on grace, by grace you've been saved and this not from yourself, by grace through faith. Remember Paul talks about that? He ends that passage by saying this, Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What about grace, Paul? Hey, you're saved. So act like it. Walk like it. Work righteousness because God has already declared you righteous. There's your motivation. The one who walks in integrity and, and works righteousness. And thirdly, who welcomes truth. He speaks truth in his heart. That is, for those going up Holy Hill... Truth is internalized. You're not just speaking truth out of your mouth. You're speaking truth in your heart. You're worshiping in spirit and in truth. You're the person who knows Jesus is truth. And you're walking in that. Verse 3, David says, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. That's important. Takes up. It's the word nasah. In the Hebrew. And it literally means receive. Read it that way. This is the person who does not receive a reproach against his friend. So the fourth thing to note here, don't receive gossip against another person. See, that goes a step beyond. This would shut down gossip in every church in the land. It's a step beyond. I Not only do I refuse to gossip, I refuse to receive it. I will not listen to it. If the person is not present, I don't want to hear it. If you want to speak it to them, speak it to them. Don't bring it to me. I will no longer receive gossip. That would be a great t-shirt for us all to start wearing. I will no longer receive gossip. And someone starts to say, hey, do you hear about so-and-so? You just go, I won't receive it. I'm not judging you. I just don't need to hear it. And I refuse to. That's the person on their way up. Holy hill. Refusing to receive gossip. David says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. This is huge. Don't respect refuse. Because the word reprobate in the Hebrew is literally refuse. Garbage. Someone whose life is about refusing the Lord. That's that's refuse. Someone who's refusing the Lord. David says, Despise that, man. Don't exalt that. Don't respect it. He's not saying to condemn. He's just saying despise what they stand for. Don't take it in. I point this out. This question came to mind. I wonder how many of our kids, those of you who have children, how many of our kids have posters on their walls of Billy Graham? Or perhaps posters depicting King David... You know, or or Paul, or Jesus, or even little pictures of Pastor Rick. No, we don't want that. (laughs) Listen, someone might be a great athlete, worthy of putting on a poster according to our country. An incredible musician, got to have that poster. You know, someone might be a musical genius, a talented actor. Oh, put them up on the wall. 
And I wonder why do we afford so much respect for those who are reprobates to the eyes of God? For those who despise the things of the Father? No, David says, man, it's those, honoring those who fear the Lord, man, those are my heroes. Those are the people that I like to think about. Those I'd love to have pictures of all the people in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith. That would be a cool poster. All of them listed there. Don't respect those who reject the Lord. The sojourner to Zion, going up holy hill, will honor those who honor God. He says at the end of verse 4, He swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now we're back to integrity. If you say you'll do it, you do it. But listen, even to your own hurt. You make a vow to the Lord, follow through with it. Even if it's painful. In other words, don't reverse your vows. Hannah did it. Not my daughter. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, is praying, Lord, I just if you'll give me a child, I will return him to you. And little Samuel was born. And Hannah took little Samuel up to the tabernacle and handed him over to Eli and said, I am keeping my vow. Do you think that was easy for her? The woman who was barren, longed for a child all her life, when she finally gets a child, she vowed to give the child to the Lord and she carries him up and gives him away. How easy is that for a mom? How easy would it be for a dad like Jephthah? Jephthah who made a vow. Judges chapter 11, an incredible story. He says, Lord, if you give us victory against the Ammonites... The first thing to wander out my door when I come home, boy, I'll sacrifice it to you. And it was his daughter. He swore to his own hurt. And by the way, Jephthah followed through. And Jephthah is honored for it in the Great Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11.32. His name is listed. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did he sacrifice his daughter? Really? Stories in Judges 11, and I encourage you to feel free to go to the website, listen to the teaching, make your own conclusion. The teaching is called Jephthah Makes a Vow, and I'm not going to give you my opinion right now. You've got to search that out for yourself. But the one who would go up Holy Hill on the way to Zion, sojourning, is also the one who, number seven, the last one I'll mention, doesn't require interest. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Never be shaken. What's the deal here? Bottom line, trust God with your money. Listen, this, this may be the most practical and the most difficult thing you hear tonight. Listen. Trust God with your money. Give to the Lord first. Make Him your financial priority. How many people, don't raise your hand, how many people give 10, 15, 20% to an IRA, to retirement, to their own refuge, man-made, but can't afford to give a tithe to the Lord? I don't know what you give. I've made it my business not to know what anybody at the bridge gives. I don't want to know. It's not good for my heart. 
Trust the Lord with your money. My friends, money is one of the primary things that sidetracks our journey up Holy Hill. Because man, it requires me to just trust the Lord. Les, can I tell the story? Les and I were talking this morning. He's got a truck. You've seen that old clunker out there. Still running. 1978 truck. And that thing, he, well, you got it in 85. Bought it in 85. And they're still trucking. And he and Donna were having this conversation. And Les and I got into this conversation this morning about, you know, what do I do with the truck? Because they have opportunities. Should we go ahead and, is it time to maybe sell it? I'm like, sell, baby, sell! <laughs> yeah. But the concern is, yeah, but it's still running and it's good and it's getting us where we need to go. And should we really waste the money? And we got into this whole thing about, here's the bottom line. Your two pastors going, wow, it is hard to trust God financially. It is. Part of the issue of buying the new truck is taking the money from one place and buying it here. And if something happens, then that money's not there to be, you know, pick up. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Do you believe that? Do you buy it? Are you buying into the fact that God will take care of you if you are making the trek up Holy Hill? You don't have to. You can, you know, pause it, Charles Schwab, on the way up if you'd like to. And you can put your trust there. Or you can put your trust in the Lord and put Him first. I'm not saying don't save for retirement. You can make a good case for good stewardship for that. I'm just saying honor God first financially. David says as this closes out, he who does these things will never be shaken. Now I need you to understand something. David gives 11 distinct things a person can do to sojourn in God's tabernacle on the way up Holy Hill. 11 things to do here. Now that's good news because it's down from 613 things you have to do in the law. Micah comes along and boils it down to three things. He says in Micah 6 verse 8, He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Oh, that's even better news. 613 was tough. 11 was better. 3, now we're getting closer to home. And Jesus came along and simplified it even more. Two commands, He said. He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Two commands. Love God and love people. Actually, it's just one. Love. That's it. And I think, I can do that. And the truth is, no, I can't. I can't even keep the one. I have trouble just loving. Much less the three of Micah or the eleven of David or the six hundred and thirteen of Moses. I can't even keep the one. It amazes me, John, that you prayed about strength tonight. Because this is exactly where the Lord has it. Listen, if we try to go up Holy Hill on our own strength, Jack will fall down and break his crown and Jill will come tumbling after. Well, so, so what do we do? None of this, listen to me, none of this is possible in the flesh. You can't do it. 
indulge me a couple more minutes. I was handed this interesting article. It's passed along from one to another and finally got to me. And it's out of Relevant Magazine. And I began to share it with some different people and the responses were so fascinating to me. Oh Me of Little Faith is the title by Jason Boyette. He says, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for most of my life, but there are times when I'm not entirely sure I believe in God. There, I said it. Now that it's out in the open, I can strip off my happy Christian mask, climb down from whatever pedestal I've hoisted myself up on, and be who I really am, a committed follower of Jesus who occasionally finds himself wondering if maybe, just maybe, we've made this whole thing up. When you live and work within the American Christian subculture, especially, he says, the less liturgical, more conservative, evangelical, mega-church sub-subculture, you hear a lot of people talking casually about their relationship with God. The way they tell it, they get frequent, distinct impressions from the Holy Spirit. They get personal promptings from Jesus. They get specific answers to prayer and detailed directions about even the most trivial aspect of their lives. I've heard someone say, I woke up in the middle of the night and thought of you, and it was definitely the Holy Spirit wanting me to pray for you right then and there. I've overheard a middle-aged woman say, it was totally a God thing that my flight got canceled because I got to share my faith to the lady next to me. Talk about a divine appointment. You guys have heard this, haven't you? He says, I've heard musicians credit God with having written their song lyrics. I've heard businessmen give God credit for finally coming through with the promotions for which they've been praying. I know a few people who don't hesitate to reveal that God told them to quit their jobs and go into full-time ministry. One Sunday I overheard someone give this recap of a worship service. The Lord totally showed up in in church this morning. When we got to that key change in breathe, you just knew God was moving. (laughs) You've heard this kind of talk too, maybe coming out of your own mouth. Please understand me, I'm not telling you or them to stop. I'm pretty sure most of these kinds of statements express a sincere and real faith in a personal God who is intimately involved in our lives. The problem is that I can't describe my own faith that way. It doesn't feel right. It makes me, listen to this, it makes me uncomfortable. Maybe I'm just a cynical grump. Maybe these Christians are truly hearing God. Maybe that's the experience of most Christians today and I'm missing out. But the God whispering in my ear thing doesn't seem to happen for me. If I hear my conscience, I'm pretty sure that's because I'm familiar enough with the teachings of Christ that I feel guilty when I've failed in some way. If I wake up in the night, I'm more likely to believe it's because my dog made a noise than to assume God wants me to pray for someone. So here he is, the guy who stays up all night wondering if there really is a dog. And why does God need me to pray for something so badly that He has to wake me up anyway? Can't He just answer the prayer without me? And He says, Am I a soulless twit to even ask? My flight gets canceled. Perhaps it's just the result of a backlog of delayed flights thanks to a major storm somewhere. I'm seriously hesitant to assume a master evangelistic plan behind flight delays, but many well-meaning Christians really do place so much value on a single soul that they have no problem believing God whipped up a thunderstorm over Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, piled stress upon airline employees, and inconvenienced hundreds of travelers for the purpose of engineering a conversation of eternal significance. My honest assessment of most divine appointment language is that it is self-centered. 
especially if your divinely appointed evangelism is at the expense of people who just want to get home in time to tuck in their kids. Okay, alright, I'm a soulless twist, he says. <laughs> if I feel an optimistic swell of the spirit during a specific song at church, maybe it's just that music has a powerful pull on my emotions. A well-timed minor seventh tends to have that effect. <laughs> And as a musician, I can confer. A well-timed minor seventh can have an effect. Maybe it's the sound of hundreds of voices singing in unison that gives me chills. Is there any chance I've been conditioned in the subtle Pavlovian anticipation of what happens in church to view this feeling as God showing up? Can an omnipresent deity ever really show up anywhere? Am I too skeptical, he asks? Too worldly? Not spiritual enough? Yes, probably. I'm full of uncertainty, but I know this for sure, these doubts aren't fun. It's a drag to feel spiritually weak when everyone else seems strong. To feel so full of doubt when everyone else oozes faith. But I love the Bible. I love that Jesus revealed in the Bible. Most days I'm convinced He rose from the dead and He is who He claimed to be. I try to follow Him. I think the life He models is the best way to live. I think the kingdom He invites me to is as revolutionary as they come. But I'd be lying if I said Jesus talked to me all the time or that He always felt as real to me as my wife and kids because He doesn't. Doubt is my middle name. Well, not literally, but close enough. And His middle name is Thomas. I've really thought about this. I read it Friday, had a great conversation that morning, handed it to a friend that afternoon, had another great conversation, had a fantastic conversation Sunday evening. Les and I sat and talked about it today again. And I'm processing and I'm thinking this through because I've got to tell you, a Rick 10 years ago would have said, yes, that's me. A Rick 10 years ago would have said, oh, it's so nice that someone finally said out loud what I feared all my life, that maybe we made it up. I don't think we really did, but what if we did? And I, but that's okay even if we did, because I like it. A Rick who was living, listen, living out of his soul and not his spirit. And that's the problem. And if you hear this, if you read this, if you relate to what this young man is saying... Please hear my heart. It's not that you're a bad person. It's not that you're a non-Christian. But have you been born again? Pastor, are you saying that to prove that I've been born again, I have to be able to say I've heard God speak? No. I'm saying as we walk in our faith, if we don't eventually hear God speak... We're stuck in our soul. And I don't mean judgment by this. Let me let, let, me let Paul speak these words to you. 1 Corinthians chapter, one, or chapter 2, verse 12. Listen to what Paul says. Please hear this. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, listen, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. So that we know, right? Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit. Combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. 
And he says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Jason said, listen, he said, he said, this just makes me uncomfortable. Why? It's foolishness to him. It's foolishness to say that God talks to me. I don't want to be one of those weirdo Christians who's out there going, well, the Lord told me this morning this, and uh, boy, the Lord really moved and worshipped. I don't want to be one of those. I just want to be real and say, I don't feel those things. And I'm saying to you, if you relate to Him and you're saying, yeah, I don't think I've ever heard God speak. What I would say to you is, shh. We need to learn to listen. So, you believe God speaks to us? Yes, I do. Do you realize you're sitting here tonight because God spoke? Because God said, I want a church here. I mean, it was, it was so absolute and so real. And this from a guy I've shared before, from a guy who was not raised Pentecostal, who did not have a charismatic bone in his body who thought or was taught growing up that it all ended after, after Paul died or after John, the last of the apostles, that the Holy Spirit settled back into the written words. That was what I believed until I started seeing God do stuff that I couldn't explain other than it's the Spirit of God actively, actively at work until God started connecting dots the Bridge Christian Fellowship. You know how the name came about? I'm praying about it. Cheryl and I, we're talking, what are we going to call this thing? I'm praying, Lord, do you have a, something specific? And I have some pretty stupid names. I'm not going to share them right now. And Jeff and Penelope are down in Southern Oregon. And this name kind of hits. Bridges or Bridge. Or, and I, and I, I emailed. Send it off. Passing in the other direction, before Penelope got my email, she had sent off an email saying, what about the bridge? Oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just one of those coincidences that you more Christian spiritual types like to place on things. I don't think so, gang. I don't believe so. That's living out of the soul. It's, it's thinking things in a humanistic way it's trying to reason our way out I am absolutely convinced that the Lord wants this fellowship to hear Him and to know what the will of God is the perfect and pleasing will of God to know His will when this church started I knew that October the 8th was going to be our first Bible study well how'd you know Rick? I knew. We hadn't even met the Gilmores yet. We had nowhere to meet. On October 1st, I had no idea where we were going to meet, but I sent out an email saying, it'll be October 8th somewhere on North Whidbey Island. In my head, I'm thinking, it's going to be a field. And on October the 8th, we met in the living room at the Gilmore's house. How did I know? I knew. How? I knew. I knew that our first Sunday morning was going to be in this barn on January the 11th. I knew that before we met on the 8th, before we met the Gilmores. I told Cheryl, we're going to start Bible study on the 8th, and on January 11th, we'll have our first Sunday morning. And Cheryl's like, how do you know? I know. Because the Spirit of God 
speaks to us if we will listen. Sometimes it is impressions. Sometimes that you know that you know that you know it is the moving of God. You know it's what He wants you to do. You haven't heard a voice, but you know in your spirit that His Spirit is saying, this is where we're going. Sometimes, yes, His Spirit speaks audibly. And I know it because the Word tells us we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. The natural man will not accept this. And here's the tension in the church. If we're living out of our soul, that is our mind, our reason, we're going to lean toward the world, the natural, and if it doesn't feel comfortable naturally, we're going to tend to shy away from the spiritual things. We've got to get out of the soul and into the spirit. How do I do that? It's this simple. Ask the Lord to teach you. Ask the Lord to draw up your spirit. Because I'm telling you, the only way we're making it up Holy Hill, the only way we're going to do these 11 things or the 3 things or the 2 things or the 1 is by the power of the Spirit of God within us. By the work of the Holy Spirit. So that we will know. Paul says, He who is spiritual... He appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised or examined by no one. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But, and please don't miss this, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We should know. And perhaps if you're not sure... I'll tell you what one friend said on Friday after reading the article. He said, this guy hasn't been born again. Maybe that's the issue. Maybe for all our intellect, we've never stepped into that place of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Which is the same thing as being born again. Born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, spiritual birth. I'll let you think about that. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I... I've gone on and on tonight. I didn't mean to, but I, I, I just, I'm feeling so strongly about this. Lord, would you draw our spirits out? Help us not to be afraid or uncomfortable with spiritual things. Lord, you know me. I'm as carnal as they come in my flesh. It's my spirit that I long to live in. It's that place of hearing you and walking with you. That's where I want to be. I want the Spirit to overcome the flesh, Father. And the strength to stand even in my weakness. To be by the power of Your Spirit. And the knowing. Not just that You are real, Father. Not only that I am saved, but the knowing that You are speaking to me and walking me up this hill. This I long for. This I desire. And this is, Father, our great delight. I pray tonight for those who are here who are just saying, yeah, I'm, just, I'm not hearing, I'm not hearing. Holy Spirit, would you come upon those in such a powerful way that they could not have any other response but to know it's you. Holy Spirit, would you cause this fellowship to be born again, to be spiritually reborn 
grow the Spirit within us, to know the Spirit within you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.